Hiya, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today, we're looking at a wonderful book, Prostitution and the Ends of Empire, Scale, Governmentalities and Interwar India, published by Duke University Press and written by Stephen Legg. Stephen Legg is Associate Professor at the University of Nottingham, and the book, as the subtitle suggests, is set in interwar India, and it looks at the spatial politics of brothels across multiple scales. I had the pleasure of speaking to Stephen a short while before. I really hope you enjoy the show. So thank you very much for joining us on New Books in South Asian Studies. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. Thanks. So we're here today to talk about uh, your book, Prostitution and the Ends of Empire, Scale, Governmentalities and Interwar India. So what I really liked about the book is, is how you're moving through all these different scales upwards, you know, so not necessarily going from the wider scale down, but you start from the, from the urban and then, you, and then you move up through the different scales. So this I, this I really enjoyed. But before we start to talk about your book, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your previous research and how you came to write this book. Sure. Um, well, the PhD research, which became the first book, really originated from an undergrad dissertation I did, which emerged out of my interest in town planning. Uh, not the most sexy of sort of academic origins, but that was what I was really interested in as a geography student. I've always been interested in how cities were laid out and functioned and how they've been thought and planned. And during my degree, um, we did a, a module on colonial urbanism. And in looking at various different cities, I became interested in New Delhi, and that's what the dissertation was on. But in the third year, I did a great course with um, James Duncan, who works on colonial Ceylon on post-colonial theory. And from there, I became interested in thinking about what in later years, I suppose I've more explicitly referred to as subaltern lives and what would an attempt to think about subaltern lives in town planning discourse do? So what I worked at was a PhD proposal that wanted to go and look almost solely at New Delhi, at the capital, but from the perspective of the thousands of low-ranking officials who work there. So thinking about a subaltern in an incredibly elite space. So I wanted to look at vernacular landscapes and from that hopefully look at some of the political acts of resistance in the city. Um, when I went to New Delhi to do the research in 2001, um, I went to the indexes and all the files were there, the clerks. Uh, were clearly tapping into electricity supplies in festivals, they were building new rooms, they were importing families, they were having bullocks and cows in their backyards, but unfortunately all those files were destroyed because they weren't classed as A or B files, they weren't classed as significant. Um, so that was a panic, um, but what I did discover were the Delhi State Archives, which were the archives of the Chief Commissioner and the Deputy Commissioner who were in charge of governing Old Delhi, the pre-existing city to the north, and those files were just amazing, filled with incredible detail um, about this attempt to make an old city suitable, a neighbouring city, to, to a capital. So I basically spent six months doing the original project with what I could get, looking at New Delhi as a lived and contested space, but that became a, a smaller part of a broader project which looked at um, landscapes of control and power. And I didn't go out to Delhi is a particularly committed Foucauldian. I was really interested in Gramsci. Um, but whilst I was out there, it became clear that two of the overriding um, means for controlling the city were a, almost textbook cases of discipline and biopolitics. So I started looking at the policing of the city in terms of crime, but also in terms of political riots and communal riots. And that became the, the central chapter of the, my, my first book. 
And I also became interested in the Delhi Improvement Trust, issues of health, accommodation and housing, which was so clearly biopolitical about the population of Delhi and how to manage it from a distance. So combining that with the previous PhD project on a residential accommodation resistance in New Delhi, that became my first book, which was out in 2007, called Spaces of Colonialism, uh, Delhi's Urban Governmentalities. So that was my first project, which was really an attempt to think about the landscapes of control, not landscapes as necessarily visual and aesthetic or um, material landscapes, but landscapes as ways in which you think about who should be where, uh, um, why and how you achieve those placements. And I looked at those in terms of race, residential accommodation in mostly New Delhi, policing across the two cities and biopolitical improvement in, in Old Delhi. And that became the first book. Um, and from that, I took time during my postdoctoral years to try to think more deeply about what a governmentality approach had to offer. Um, so I did some, some work on geography and space in Foucault more broadly um, and a piece on Foucault and the question of the post-colonial. Foucault is an almost entirely European thinker and how geographers have helped us take those ideas elsewhere. So whilst I was joined the postdoc working the, the PhD up into a, a book, I went back to Delhi and was looking again at some of the local laws that the Delhi Improvement Trust worked with, which was mostly the Delhi Municipal Bylaws. These were just long lists of laws affecting everything from street lighting to how wide the road should be, where the municipal waste dump should be. In amongst all those, and I mentioned this in the um the, the preface to the prostitution book, there was just this throwaway line about th the streets in which prostitutes would be allowed to dwell. And that really caught my eye. I'd done a, another brilliant undergraduate course with Philip Howell at Cambridge on the historical geographies of the regulation of prostitution. So just out of curiosity, I pulled up a few files. Uh, they were quite difficult to find. And that became part of the story because there was no established discourse or acceptable official discourse on prostitution. So those files would sometimes very rarely be filed as prostitution, but usually they came up under venereal disease, um, immoral acts, um, the various different terms and bills and apparatus that emerged for dealing with the phenomenon of what we call uh, prostitution. And that um, sort of got me hooked, really. I, I planned to just research it for a few weeks and then it became ate up most of that trip and then a few other trips back to India over the following years and that became um, the research for this book. Wow, that's great. I mean, and I think you can really feel when you're reading the book, especially in the in the preface and the introduction, your excitement in the archives as well. Like mm. that, that comes through as well, that, like the sense of discovery as well, which is really nice. Absolutely. But um, one thing I don't talk about explicitly here, I address elsewhere, is my caution as a white man from Europe mm -hmm. at that level of excitement of discovery. And I'm um, sort of after, as, as a sort of end to this project on prostitution, I'm doing some papers at the moment on Spivak and subaltern theory. And there's a brilliant line in a book, which discusses a whole book, which discusses Spivak's Can the Subaltern Speak um, article, where we are warned against both uh, refusal to try to say something about the subaltern but also there's a great line which we refuse against the positivistic euphoria of discovery um and that is what i think there was at the start because as i said my earliest project was an attempt to find these residential subaltern in in new delhi and i didn't really find many there were some 
but there was that excitement when when I found these files and these incredible stories in the Delhi archive, um, which become the basis of chapter one. There is that excitement, but as soon as that excitement emerges, I think it's important to question why the sexual is so exciting um, yes. to researchers. And I teach I, I teach one lecture on this, and it's clearly the one in which students pay most attention. So I try to make it as dull as possible. <laughs> that's, <Right>. what I, <laughs> that's what I say in the book. This isn't, you're not going to find any life stories of prostitution. There's practically no sex in this book. Right. It's about the regulation. And in so doing, I, I try to get us to question why people were so interested in uh, and worried why, why the prostitute was such a figure of fear and fascination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's 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 move a little bit then to talk about the book, and this is a this is a good segue into it because exactly the the brothel is the is at the centre of the book, but at the same time is it takes us everywhere. So first on first first chapter is very much about Delhi, the second chapter is about the British British uh, uh, India, yeah. and then the, and then the final chapter is is about you know, the imperial empire, but also about this this wonderful character. Uh, Millicent Shepherd and this association for moral and social hygiene. Mm. But before we get into the the bulk of the book, and uh, I think we need to probably need to talk a little bit about the the key concepts that you're using. And I think you, I mean, I'm 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 not a Foucauldian at all. I mean, I've not read very much. But and so when I opened the introduction, I was like, okay, I'm going to find this hard work. But it's not at all. You really lay it out quite quite well for even people who aren't into this literature. So it's really nice the the way you do it. And you bring Thank together you. quite a few different concepts that, that you wouldn't first think. And I suppose the most important is assemblage and, and apparatus. You bring those together and 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 talk all the time about the post-colonial and also how to fit this into a scalar analysis. So I was wondering if you can talk us through these ideas and, and how they and how they came about and how they helped you. Sure. Um, in terms of um, scale when I was working on the, the first book, the Delhi book, I was lucky enough to do a um, session at the Royal Geographical Society with Colin McFarlane, who works, who's done, got a brilliant book on um, thinking about knowledge, education and um, slums in uh, Mumbai. And we did a session on basically uh, colonial and development theory and the urban. And one of the questions we were looking at there is a a question posed by Jenny Robinson and others about the, the ordinary city and which cities are ordinary. Um, there is a temptation to think of big global cities um, like London, or New York, or Tokyo, or in the colonial period, places like Delhi as exceptional and um, in some way inherently different. And the great thing about those sort of discussions was to remind me, just as my earlier project was to think of the vernacular landscapes within a place like New Delhi, it was exceptional, but it was also a humdrum administrative city in which people got up every day and went to work and got tired and came home. Um, What I took from those sort of discussions was an attempt to always focus upon the ordinariness of all places, even if they're global imperial cities. Um, But that doesn't and that shouldn't take away from the relational nature of these cities. They're constituted by their outsides and those have impacts upon um, what happens within them. So that really, for me, was the challenge. Um, I'd addressed it um, as a background issue in the first book on New Delhi because I wanted to focus on the micropolitics of what was happening in this city, whilst, of course, bearing... Um, due attention to the fact that it's an imperial city designed from London, that the biopolitics is informed by models of improvement from outside, that the police are drawing upon the Shanghai riot mob. They have lessons and people coming in from Calcutta and Bombay. So the, 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 the relationness of Delhi was 
a little more implicit in the first book. Um, and I wanted to make that more um, explicit in the second book, um, which wasn't just a theoretical move. It was quite clear that Delhi was not setting the agenda on prostitution policy. Um, it was amongst the last to pass the laws against prostitution that had been spreading throughout India. Um, it wasn't agenda setting in policy. Its policies were brought from elsewhere. It was actually very reluctant to do anything. Um, but there clearly were ideas coming in from outside um, that were impacting upon it. So it became clear to me that scale was going to be the central component of this book, just as space was the sort of analytical frame for the first book. So that got me interested in scale. And it can't be coincidental, it can't be coincidental I suppose, that whilst I was writing this book, this big scale debate um, kicked off in, in geography and elsewhere by an article um, entitled Human Geography Without Scale by um, Marston Jones and Woodward, um, which is a very intentionally provocative article which suggested that scale is actually not a useful frame. It's absolutely uh, inseparable from assumptions about high and low, big is powerful, weak is, it might be resistant, but it's necessarily power uh, less. And it was suggested we abandon scale. And a lot of that was quite um, um, really productive for me in thinking about the scale of assumptions we, I think we all have when we're writing on something like colonialism. But ultimately, I made the argument in a transactions paper uh, from a few years ago now that we can't jettison scale, but we can think of its effects and how it's constructed. So that really became the project for the book. And that's where scale came from. <laughs> and just as in the previous book, I tr tried to use the governmentality work to explain how space is created and policed and um, regulated. I tried to use the governmentality work to think about how scales are created and policed and regulated here. So what is the, the national? Um, through a fairly close reading of, of, again, some Foucault lectures which were translated during the writing of this book, The Birth of Biopolitics Lectures, um, I try to extract from that book a methodology which it appears to me that he's using quite explicitly to help us think about how um, phenomena which come to gain the appearance of being natural mm -hmm. and take it for granted are in fact heavily created, uh, contingent and constantly recreated. He talks about things like society, civil society, um, uh, the economy and the state and what I've wanted to try to do is to do for scale what he's doing for those objects to think about the methodologies um, through which we can show how the local the national the imperial the regional the international um, are created and i suggest a methodology that encourages us to question when any of those scales appear to be natural and to think about the networks that create them material networks and discursive networks and the processes of naming who mm -hmm. who and how do you decide which city is global um how do you decide what constitutes a region how do you police the boundaries of the national so that was how the scale and the governmentality parts came together mm -hmm. um in terms of um apparatus and assemblage which are these two terms i take apparatus from um foucault who talks about apparatus of security is some of the discursive and institutional mechanisms through which governmentalities are created um, but also I use, appropriate the term assemblage from Deleuze. And again, I've done a short piece in the Geography Journal area where I try to talk about the relationship of those two terms. Um, I think 
what I clearly like Foucault a lot, but one of the dangers with Foucault is everything is very tidy. Um, mm-hmm. He's such a mind that he can seemingly explain everything and everything fits in place. And the danger with that incredible set of descriptions about how society is disciplined, about how populations are regulated, is that you risk becoming complicit with the project through simply describing how everything is always inscribed in in power relations. And that's one of the most justifiable and very effective critiques of Foucault. Everything becomes regulated. Even when you're resisting, you're actually creating new forms of, of power. And in terms of space, um, the Foucauldian view of space can simply become a series of grids. Um, they're not particularly messy. Um, all messiness gets sort of swept up. Um, so a great person to think um, with Foucault is Deleuze, who for every striation of a smooth space encourages us to think of rhizomatic flows, for every territorialization encourages us to think of um, deterritorializations. And that for me is what assemblage theory um, does. It reminds us that everything is constantly um, in flow and dissimulation in processes of, of unbecoming as well as becoming, and that things are messy, that um, the things which emerge for us, whether it's a conception of a disease, whether it's a desire for sex, whether it's a belief in how a city should be organised, is made up of the most incredible number of components, which can be a, a memory, an object you came across. It can be a book. Um, it can be a disease. Um, so for me, Deleuze is a really important person to think Foucault through. And also, I think a lot of us all already think of Foucault through Deleuze, he's such an important thinker now, but also his book, Foucault, um, many of us will have read. Um, and um, for me, um, I'm not a Deleuzean, um, but I think it's great to read um, people who you perhaps risk focus- focusing on too much with other people. That's why I sometimes read Foucault with um, Carl Schmitt or against Carl Schmitt, sometimes with Said and Spivak. Um, I think it's very productive. So that's why I um, introduced assemblage fairly early on. It's as a check um, to remind us not to be too tidy. Sure, and this and this creative tension you can it runs through the runs through the entire book of your analysis. And and what actually was was very nice, I think, about the way you introduced the, the concepts in this introduction is that uh, especially like so this nature networks and, and nominalism, you're reminding us always through the chapters in a in a you know with by basically italicizing the terms when you're when you're bringing them up again, which is a which is a nice way. To sort of constantly remind us of the of the theoretical project at the same time of of the of the sort of key material of the book as well. So that's really well, appreciated as as a reader. I'm glad you think that. I mean, it, that's been one of the bigger debates, well, not the debates, series of conversations I've had about the first book, um, which is about the theory. Uh, a lot of my perhaps more empiricist South Asian friends don't like the theory. They think it gets in the way, and they I think they just blank it out. <laughs> they go, go, go for the detail, whereas lots of other people clearly just read it for the theory and don't read the empirical work at all. Um, and that's great if you um, if you go on Google citations or whatever, look where it's cited. It's um, Some people read it for the city, some people read it for the theory, and that's fine. So it's an attempt to get that balance right. I think when I started writing the book, I'd taken my South Asianist comments to heart, and I just wanted a little bit of theory at the beginning. And then I just wanted it to enter the narrative of the book and not keep going on about it. But all the reviewers, when it, when Duke sent it out, constantly said, we want you to tell us in the chapter where the bigger picture fits in. So, as you said, the sort of italicised use of terms, hopefully, 
guide the people, uh, the reader to the bigger argument. But I hope it's not too. No, I don't think so. I mean, like it's just. I mean, it comes at the beginning and the end of, of most of the chapters. Sure. Just, yeah. just as a as a reminder. So it's oh, um, so it so it works well. So let's let's talk now then about the about the about the material itself. So the first chapter is about Delhi. So this, the scale here is the urban, and you're looking yep. at the production of civil society and sexuality, and the network is very much on a local level. Yep. So you're both looking at the state and voluntary organizations and resistance and networks. Uh, and so you show, how to say, so you show how, how Delhi's women were sort of moved around the city or pushed around the city, you know, into marginal spaces. And yeah, how, is it the right way to say outsourced maybe the the state was outsourced its responsibility to these different groups so a good question to get you in there i think is you 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 call this um civic abandonment no or they're civilly abandoned yeah yeah so what what do you mean by this and then how how did it happen this okay yeah well um another check i suppose i tried to introduce in the first book and this one against i think a misreading that some people um slip into when they're using the governmentalities analysis is to think that Foucault's only interested in in power and not really about politics and that there's not a critical edge to what he's doing and how we can use him. So for me in, in geography there's a strong community of critical geographers who constantly remind us of or remind us to think about the ethical um, implications of what we're doing and how we study and what we represent so i always wanted this to be a critical project and in the first book i described that as a way of looking at the excesses and neglects of colonial governmentality an excess of violence an excess of power an excess of certain types of surveillance whereas a neglect of certain commitments to welfareism to pastoralism to other forms of economic engagement and what i wanted to do in this book was to continue that um project but it it it's a very different um, focus to the first book because I was trying to get beyond the state. Um, Delhi, is, as the capital, is so um, penetrated by different branches of the state. Um, it was important to acknowledge that. Here, um, the, the state was really very reluctant in most cases to do anything regarding prostitutes. It, it didn't want to take on that mission, especially in the context of growing nationalist demands for other types of interventions in terms of gender and sexuality. So at the heart of this book is an attempt to think beyond the state, to think about how civil society mobilised against the around these issues. Although the state was constantly um, trying to uh, affect that policy in terms of its international obligations to the League of Nations and its um, mostly military commitments to keeping the forces clean and able to fight. So what I wanted to do is to find a way of thinking about how civil society um, had possibly a very negative effect on these women and that involves embracing a series of contradictions most of these civil society organizations are charities most of them are not uh, um, raving right-wing penal organizations they're out there genuinely to help these women Um, but it would appear to people from a particular mindset that those attempts to help were actually incredibly destructive because of the moral and political mindsets through which prostitutes were being approached um so at the center of the book is the way in which brothels were posed and for many feminists the best way to help these women was to chuck them out of their house to close down their brothel to force them onto the streets because in the brothel they might be trafficked or abused so that was the challenge how do you present a a critical analytical language through which you can look at how civil society 
often very philanthropic charitable organizations end up persecuting these women for their own good and the thinker i think with foucault here is is the gambon um who i've had issues with before in the first book i said how unhelpful I thought the focus on Homo Sacco was and the, the camp had become an obsession. Uh, for a gambler, the camp functions like the Panopticon does for Foucault. It's a way of thinking about a type of power relation. So what I try to do is to talk about a gambler's uh, topologies here and his thinking of sovereign power and his work on abandonment and the, the, the role that abandonment plays in terms of inside and outside. And that's where I put the two terms together. Foucault's really great work on governmentality and civil society and Agamben's work on abandonment. And I put the two together to create this term civil abandonment to show how civil society really did abandon these uh, women. And in, in Delhi, there's a very clear geography through which you can um, show that. One is a sort of exclusive inclusion. You exclude the women from the city. That's what the first half of the chapter shows through a series of applications of the Delhi Municipal Act um, particular bazaars in the centre of the old walled city were banned for brothels and public prostitutes. And as those bans expanded, the women were pushed further and further out of the city. And I show how every location they were pushed to, they were relocated to, local residents would then complain again. And that's moral, it's about their area, but it's also economic. They don't want their house prices, their rental prices, their business hit by the reputation of these women and their off-putting effect on, on rentiers and customers. So that's the first element of civil abandonment. You exclude women. Ironically, through excluding them, you actually include them in a governmental and a civil society mindset because you have to think about where they're going. So it's not you don't cast them out of mind. You're now charged with finding somewhere, somewhere for them to stay. In the second half of the chapter, I look at the other, the switch of those terms that Jugambin forces us to think about, which is inclusive exclusion. How do you exclude women from certain rights? Ironically, by including them. And what I do there is look at the, the laws that dealt with the exclusion of women from Delhi, and particularly at the foundation of the Delhi Rescue Home. Um, so the way the government um, outsourced this work was to be willing to pass a law, but to say that the law could only be enforced when a rescue home had been provided for any young uh, girls or young women who are found in brothels. But the state refused to run that home because that was decided to be a philanthropic um, exercise. So unless local civil society, voluntary associations could find and fund and run a, a respectable rescue home, the law would not be passed. So I look at the founding of the rescue home through a series of collaborations between imperial and Indian feminists, local campaigning groups, and look at what that home did in terms of taking prostitutes into the um, grasp of civil society. So I look at those two processes, one of forcing out, one of bringing in uh, as that a mechanism of civil abandonment. And the first chapter lays that out in a lot of detail. And what you see elsewhere in the book is that that process, I think, is happening more broadly across the country. Mm -hmm. Great. And that's a, and that's a nice way to, 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 scale it up if you like into the into the second the second chapter and um i think i should point out to listeners these chapters are extremely extremely rich with details extremely extremely um long i was saying just before we um just before we started recording to to Stephen that the the, the chapters are, are definitely chap book book length chapters you know they're not at all constrained by 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 the limits of being in an article so they really you really get to 
you really get and, and what's I suppose what's very nice is that you get to hear this wonderful sort of um, late colonial language which was being used by by officials as well you no know, in the way they were writing as well about about the, or the way they were talking also about these yeah uh, that's I mean, that's what I've always tried to do in in both books is to give as much space as possible to let I'm not going to say let the documents speak for themselves because I'm obviously interpreting them but the language is so incredibly rich but it's also for me very I've always been interested in the interwar period um, because it does seem so close as well um, so many of the concerns and the language is is so close to us but also so clearly determined by discourses at the time of sexology and hygiene particularly create this particular way of of speaking which is shared by Gandhi by Melissa Shepherd who I talk about by governors who are all reading and trying to get to grips with this new way of publicly speaking and thinking about sexuality um, so it's it's not a Victorian mindset although there are obviously those 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 hangovers but what I do try is to, to give space to this incredible um, incredible detail and what I also try to do in this in the second chapter just to say something briefly on how scale isn't just a theoretical uh, language here I try to use it to structure the book it's the structure of the book attempts to um, deal with the challenge of acknowledging that scales are created and imagined but also very real so each of the three chapters addresses a scale but what I try to do in each um, chapter that keeps scales a narrative devices to show that each scale is simultaneously always created by its outsides. So Delhi, there are constantly people coming into Delhi, uh, laws are coming in, people are coming in, ideas are coming in, demands are coming in, but they constitute the city. And in the second chapter, what I try to show is that India obviously exists as a scale, as a territory, as a bounded um, network. It's got incredible potency as a, as a name, but as soon as you try to study India, you find yourself actually studying regions, provinces, peoples, India is an international phenomenon. So what I try to do in the book is to show that India does exist, there's no doubting it, but it exists because it's constantly created by all these these flows and outsides. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is and this actually comes through very nicely because you in the in the second chapter you you look at um you're you're looking at these quite disparate places. You look at Bombay and Rangoon and you're looking at these two scandals that that, that there and this really this is the I think it's at the beginning of the chapter you discuss these scandals and maybe maybe it's a way to give a bit of um yeah a bit of a feeling for people what what, what sort of things are going on. Could you describe these scandals? Like what sure. were they and why yeah. did they cause such a such why were these scandals, yeah? Mm. Well that really is sort of at the heart of what that whole chapter, the very big middle chapter tries to do and I try to set the background for this in a modern Asian studies paper, which is about the idea of a scandal and what a scandal is and why something becomes scandalous at a particular time. And again, for a governmentality approach to understanding change, I always try to put problematizations first. So the driving force behind all these acts is not some high-minded decision to save or rescue the prostitute. It was almost always a scandal to which governors, civil society organizers, councillors, were forced at long last to actually do something. Um, so what we find is that there are two scandals that really lead to a, a series of experimentation uh, across provinces in colonial India. The one which Ashwini Tambe has written about in her book called Codes of Misconduct um, uh, from 1917 in Bombay is this still um, phenomenally shocking case of Akutai, who was a young woman who was in a brothel um, in 
Bombay and uh, attempted to escape. She was basically being forcibly held there and was caught and captured and beaten and tortured and died. Um, and she would have um, been cremated without trace had a police officer not felt something was suspect about the way this corpse was being moved through the city, investigated, and it became this huge case. Um, and I'm doing a paper at the moment, where this paper on subalternism, where I try to look at some of the, the court transcripts, the witness statements about this young woman's life. And a lot of the details and the files I've come across in this project is just phenom- phenomenally difficult to deal with. And the challenge is to not think of all these women as victims. Many people would use the term sex worker rather than prostitute. Many of them clearly chose to work in this profession because there weren't other economies open to them. And when people tried to rescue them, they refused because they wanted to stay in this in this profession. That comes through time and time again. But there are also clearly cases of women who are trafficked and um, abused. And this case genuinely did create a national outcry. The government was horrified at the press coverage, but also I think you do genuinely get a sense of the people who hear about this case that they are they are horrified. So that set off a series of national investigations, which is the central government demanded of its provincial governments to find out if there were similar acts occurring in their red light districts, which there weren't. Um, a less high profile uh, scale took place in Rangoon, which um, another thing which the period I'm looking at allows is to actually take Burma seriously in looking at the government of India. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's Burmese studies by and large are separate to um, South Asian studies, Indian focused studies, and that's with very good reason. Um, and there was a relatively narrow period in which Burma was considered as a province of British India, but this was one of them. And People took very seriously what was happening in Rangoon, one of the big significant port cities of British India as defined at the time. And um, it was really down to a series of local experimentations with municipal policy that had effectively created a really quite substantial red light district smack bang in the middle of of Rangoon. And this was more of a moral outcry. Again, this is civil society um, complaining and um, in the modern Asian studies um, paper, I reproduced this amazing map, the only map I found in 10 years of working on this topic, in which, as part of a protest against these red light districts, uh, a a sort of voluntary association campaigning group drew up a map in which the brothels were coloured in red, the schools were white circles, and it showed brothels next to schools, and this was the clinching argument that these um, the red light districts should be abolished. So Rangoon was one of the first ones to experiment with laws that could do this, and um, so did Bombay. It, it tightened up its uh, own laws, and what we then see is as the broader opinion starts to turn against brothels for very complex reasons, which are both international, there's growing international turns against brothels because they're thought to be linked to um, trafficking. It's intellectual um, sexology and hygiene theory is decrying the brothel. It's increasingly moral Indian nationalists, Indian campaigners, Indian feminists are campaigning for us to think of the occupants of brothels as human beings that shouldn't be treated that way. So it's from that context, allow those two sites to become 
scandals. And it's those two, I argue, that lead to the post-war uh, legislative um, acts, what became known as the Suppression of Immoral Trafficking Act, mm -hmm. which um, targeted both trafficking and red light districts. <laughs> That's great. And um, so let's, yeah, let's, let's move on a little bit. We can, I think we can come back at the end of this, if this sure. is missed, but let, let's, let's, it's a, it's, it's a good segue again into the, yeah. into the third chapter, because again, we, 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 you stretch it out now or scale up now. Um, and you, you, you tell this chapter about, yeah, you tell this chapter through, uh, through an individual. So this is actually very nice that again, even though we're talking probably the, the, uh, the sort of largest scale, but again, it's, it's through, in a very, it's through the, an individual life, which is very interesting. Through this, um, you term her an imperial feminist. Is your term or, or somebody else's term? This was a term which was used in the early 80s to consider precisely this. One of the authors okay. is actually Baroness Amos, uh, who ah, went okay. to greater governmental circles, but in her earlier days, <laughs> she was a very, very effective uh, academic, and she used that term to basically raise the question of, question which at that time was incredibly important of thinking basically about third world feminisms and how feminism as it emerged in Europe and America um, simply did not address the same questions that faced women of colour <laughs> and yes. um, that's one of the main um, points which come up in this chapter I, it was very I didn't want this chapter to be about Melissa Shepard um, for context she, she was sent to India in 1926 and stayed there um, she managed to string together funding to stay there for nearly 20 years, and she was campaigning for laws that would close down, that tolerated brothels in red light districts. Um, I've done a previous paper on her um, where I address explicitly her status as an imperial feminist, i.e., um, can you be a feminist and an imperialist, i.e., a supporter <laughs> of empire, and at times explicitly racist? Yes. Um, how, how can you be those two things at the same time? And, endless cases show of course you can be those those two things and they come together in um the belief that india could not look after its own women and thus a white feminist uh, would have to come in and do that for the country um so i've addressed her in a previous paper i didn't want the chapter to be about her um but you can't deny that and it's an archival archival point um she was funded from london so she sent back letters files reports they're stored at what was the women's library the, the whole collection is now moved to lse um so she assembled it she censored it she wrote it she's a very 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 strong personality so um i, I acknowledge that but the reports and the details of what the the association for moral and social hygiene were doing and the the things they detailed were so incredibly rich that i think eventually the chapter doesn't end up just being about her because no, no, sure. materials, but you you can never for a second um, get away from her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, but I mean exactly. But you use her to tell a much bigger story about the sorts of um, yeah imperial discourses around sexology and, mm -hmm. and and yes, this wonderful yet yeah, moral and social hygiene, such a wonderful phrase. So you use her to tell the sorts of the, these sorts of. Um, yeah, yeah, discourses that were going on that were going on at the time. And what what I think was really interesting was that this was something which was, I mean, she was um, in contact with the League of Nations, no, and uh, and like uh, as well as the Indian colonial government. So so it's so it really was a it really was a, a big issue at the time. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there was originally a fourth chapter of the book that was on the League of Nations, um, but it was too large, uh, and also. Um, there's really not been that much written on India and the League of Nations. So it required so much 
contextualization that in the end the chapter was dropped and I've done a few papers on this issue. But what was interesting is how um, inspired many of these women were, not just British feminists, but lots of Indian feminists, um, Aruna Asafali and many other figures in Delhi, were by the League of Nations, really inspired and interested by it as a, an alternative to um, imperial ways of doing things. Um, and yeah, Shepard was <coughs> a committed um, believer in the League of Nations, even when it fell very much out of favour in India, especially after the failure to act over the invasion of Abyssinia by Italy. But yes, she was she, she shows perfectly how um, you can simultaneously be an internationalist, um, but also be completely plugged into provincial and local networks of the colonial system. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us a little bit more about the Association for Moral and Social Hygiene? Because they're, they're there quite a bit in the book. But I mean, yeah, what, what was their role? Well, they emerged out of Butler's campaigns in the 19th century against contagious diseases acts, which allowed women in various port cities in the UK to be forcibly detained and tested for venereal diseases um, if they were out at night. Uh, they could be presumed to be a, a prostitute. But what many people have shown is that those contagious diseases acts <clears throat> drew upon similar acts um, worldwide. Philip Howell has shown how they were actually based on British experiments with similar laws throughout the empire, but then they themselves were exported, notably to India as well, um, and they were repealed. But after their repeal, various other laws emerged to um, fill that role, can, um, the cantonment Cantonment Acts, amongst others. So that those campaigning organisations morphed, they changed name various times, and in the 20s they adapted to this emergent um, discourse and became one of them, became the Association for Moral and Social Hygiene. And Shepard explicitly um, views herself as continuing Butler's campaign in India. Um, so it was, um, what's fascinating about it is it's simultaneously anti- state and anti-colonial state um, if they continue to regulate uh, and inspect and create conditions for prostitution for soldiers for sailors and for the Indian population more broadly but at the same time they're doing it to save the empire because they believe that those sort of acts undermine the empire's claim to be a civilizing force so although Shepard and her predecessors harried colonial officials endlessly they're doing it because they think what they're doing is harming the empire so that's why she's an imperialist as, as well as a feminist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, i just it came to my mind i think one thing we didn't mention from from the previous chapter which is also interesting is in terms of policies is this um uh, the acronym is CETA. You know the mm-hmm. so maybe you can explain us if the listeners also a little bit about the role of this policy as well yeah, well, the, the Suppression of Immoral Trafficking Acts um, emerged from, took inspiration from the the, the Rangoon, uh, the Burma Act we mentioned earlier, and Bombay. And they basically combined powers to target um, trafficking and soliciting, but also public um, uh, prostitution and brothels. They brought those two urges against both the effect of brothels on cities and the effect of trafficking on, on women and uh, brought those two together. The, the term Sita is interesting because Sita is a Hindu goddess. I mean, I've not been able to find um, any detailed discussion of who first came up with precisely that um, Mm-hmm. That, the name of that act and that, that acronym, but it is very telling, which I discussed slightly at the start of the second act. And yeah, why do the structure of the second 
um, chapter is effectively looking at the the different ways in which suppression of immoral trafficking acts were debated at each province they passed through. The central government would not pass uh, an act uh, against um, trafficking and prostitution because it couldn't. In 1919, the government of India acted devolved um, all those powers to the provincial levels in which they'd be administered by mostly elected Indian ministers. So each province had to pass their own act. And that was what Shepherd tried to do. But he, when each province was debating, she'd sort of parachute herself in mm-hmm. and just um, drown them with flyers, with stats, with information <laughs> to get these provincial laws passed. <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, she's such a, I mean, I, I'm going to look up your, your paper on her because she's such a fascinating person. I mean, it's She is, like... but she also <laughs> suffers a lot. There's a, there's a real sense of her being slightly out of time um, and a bit of a relic in some senses in terms of her views. Um, but in other senses, she's completely on the ball in terms of emergent science and, and philosophy. And she corresponds with Gandhi and he gives her some advice. But eventually, in the context of nationalism, um, she's very much turned against and ends up effectively working for the government, which sort of damns her further. So in some senses, it's quite a tragic um, story. But in others, she um, achieves a lot. She really does shape a lot of the official discourse, especially, and a lot of that in civil society. <laughs> okay, well, we've, we've, we've talked a lot now. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering like, if there's anything you think I've missed or we've missed in, in terms of the book that, that you'd really like to flag up? No, not really. Thank you for reading it so closely. Um, I suppose what I try to do in the conclusion is to um, look across the book. And I was chatting to a colleague who's writing his um, conclusion. At the moment, it's really difficult to know what to do in a conclusion sometimes. There's no point summarising the whole thing. But what I do try to do is to show how those interests which, which you picked out earlier in assemblages and apparatuses and scales and governmentality thread through each uh, chapter and try to perhaps suggest some of the broader lessons that those attempts to analyse archival material might have more broadly. But what I do very, very briefly is um, um, try to hint at some of the conversations I had with my colleague Srila Roy in a special issue we did on sort of emergent current sexual formations in India, which is to try to think about the post-colonial legacies of all these mm-hmm. developments. Um, it's not at all possible or easy to say that because GB Road was nominated the red light district in Delhi in the 1930s, that that determines the city now, but it is. It is still the red light district, and it was it was a result precisely of what I'm describing here. Similarly, lots of the red light districts described in other cities are ongoing. If you look at the the afterlives of the CETAs and the ongoing civil society organisations, it's clear that there were legacies to these acts, but they've constantly been warped and changed. So what I resist in the conclusion is saying that this is your template for understanding contemporary prostitution politics in India, but there clearly are legacies. And at some point in the distant future, I I would perhaps be interested in trying to track some of those legacies, but that's, that is definitely for another day. Mm-hmm. So, and that's uh, that leads me on to my very final question. First, yeah. thanks a lot because we've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, but what, uh, yeah, what's you've mentioned a little bit? This is one future project that you're look you're working through this subaltern studies ideas. Is there any yeah. other work you're working on? Sure. Now? Well, um, the next project, um, uh, what I didn't mention was the second half of the PhD, as well as looking at 
regulations in old delhi i was the second the whole second half of the the, the doctorate was actually about nationalist movements in old delhi and how it was okay. how the the potency of it being the capital was was um taken up by local nationalists and campaigners so the next project is um to write um a sort of counter to the first book which looks anti-colonialism in delhi and the reason i'm using smolten theory now to do some sort of end of project reflections on prostitutes and the archive is to enable me to use those insights um, when i go on to look at um anti-colonialism in delhi in which the subalterns are the the massive uh, people in in old delhi who participated in um these protests and riots and mobilizations in the city so the subaltern theory is really going to help me try to um frame that next project okay Great. Okay. So thanks. Thanks again for agreeing to come on. It really is a wonderful book. I recommend it to anyone who's interested in both interwar um, India, but also people who are interested in, yeah, Foucauldian studies or, or and people who are also interested in, in uh, yeah, I guess feminist geography as well. Right? It, really, it really brings together lots of different areas. So That's thanks again for coming on. Really kind. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to New Books in South Asian Studies. I've been Ian Cook, your host, and today we've been talking about prostitution and the ends of empire, scale governmentalities in interwar India by Stephen Legg. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you'll get to check out the book yourselves. Bye.